You have found the Bystander Podcast today, October 20th, 2017. On this day, 1968, 21-year-old Oregon Dick Fosbury wins gold in Mexico and sets an Olympic record when he jumps seven feet, four and a quarter inches. It was the first American victory in the event since 1956. It was also the debut of what we now refer to as the Fosbury Flop. Today's podcast is sponsored by That's a Sun Pizza. Using a 120-year-old starter from the Klondike Gold Rush, they make unique sourdough crust that can't be found anywhere else in the world. That's a Sun Pizza also delivers wine and beer. Order now. Call 206-842-2292 or order online at thatsasum.com. Or you can download the That's a Sum app on Android and iOS. Also want to give a shout out and congratulations to Alan Raymond and Will Grant from That's the Sum who brought home the first place trophy from their recent Capito Cup at the Pizza and Pasta Show in Atlantic City. Well done. Way to represent Bainbridge Island. Today's word of the day is knee jerk, which means readily predictable. I'd like to give a shout out to the 45-year-old birthday boy who happened to sell 300 million records, Snoop Dogg. Sounders' last, season, last regular season game is this Sunday at 4 o'clock. They're looking to clinch a bye in the playoffs. Seahawks are 3-2, and two, play the Giants Sunday at 135. The Sonics are off this week, month, year, season. Bring back the Sonics. Shout out to Tom Sawyer. Um, I appreciate all your help at Eagle Harbor Insurance as I'm going through the claim process with my recently damaged vehicle. Also, I'd like to give a shout out to Officer Lewis, who showed great empathy towards a homeless and mentally ill man at Starbucks. It's very important when we're dealing with the homeless that we recognize that they're not there by choice all the time, and mental issues and help is needed. So I appreciate I appreciated his empathy and patience with the man that was causing so much disruption out at Starbucks. My guest today is Joe Dietz. What's good, Joe? Oh, uh, it's a great day, nice and rainy this Friday, and uh, the election is, what, 19 days away. It's coming quick, and that rain is coming quick, too. Yesterday was stormy. Hey, um, Joe, did you hear about this um, new story in Portugal where there was seven kids who um, were ages 8 to 18 whose district had been ravished by forest fires? They decided to sue 47 European nations, accusing them to fail, of failing to take action on climate change. 14% of the greenhouse emissions, uh, according to the EPA and the Paris Climate Agreement, um, come from those countries. So these kids are asking them to quit f- um, mining fossil fuel. But 
that's a take action moment, I think, especially by kids. I think the 18 year old kind of spurred it on, but uh, having an eight year old say, hey, you guys are not leaving the environment in a condition that, that's conducive of me growing up in a healthy lifestyle and enjoying my place. What do you think of that? Oh, I th- I think that well, it's it's not great that this is happening, of course, uh, in the climate change, but it is. It's just a fact. But it is very good that uh, these kids are stepping up. This is what we all need to do. We all need to start uh, stepping up and doing what we can. And a lot of that means personal choices, but also working on changing policy. And that's that's something that's very dear and important to me. That's pretty cool that. Um Bainbridge independently agreed to be part of the Paris Climate Act. How did that originate? Who, who started that? Uh, I, I don't actually know, to be honest. But I, I think that that's all about leadership here. You could say the Paris Climate Agreement is uh, removed from Bainbridge. But I, I would disagree, personally, that uh, we need to take local communities, local uh, cities and, and states need to start taking uh, leadership roles since that is devoid in, on the national level. Absolutely. Um, you work mostly in, in clean in energy and finance. Um, tell me a little bit about your experiences and how you see financing related to energy. Um, mm. how, how do we spend the money properly? The technology is readily available now in terms of renewables, uh, wind, solar, energy efficiency, it's there now, and it works quite well. The difficulty is the policies are not in place. And related to that, sometimes it's very difficult to do financing. I could tell you a story about Community Solar, a program that I helped initiate with the help of Senator Rockefeller. We created a, a state law in 2010, which allowed uh, people to uh, invest in their communities through a solar project that would be placed on a local government building, which such as I did at uh, City Hall. Putting the solar system at City Hall is actually very straightforward. However, creating a financial instrument where, uh, in this case, 25 families invested in the project, the city did not pay a dime for the system, but uh, 25 families uh, invested, including my wife and myself, uh, seems pretty straightforward, right? However, uh, there's a lot of laws and policies in place that, frankly, I've, I find make it quite difficult. I have a background in finance, so th- that was immensely helpful. But how did we package this project in a way that, was, uh, that we could do it? Um, let me just say, uh, this may be getting into the weeds a little bit, but it's important to know. When you do, when people give you money with the anticipation of getting something back in return, that's considered a security. Once that becomes, that that determination is made, a whole bunch of laws play out. Uh, Laws that go back to the 1930s during the Great Depression. And a lot of these are well-meaning, but frankly, the result is it makes it very, very difficult to do local projects, such as what we did at City Hall, uh, where uh, trying to do a pooling arrangement where people can uh, invest with some intent of getting money back, right? Uh, But for instance, I could not 
because this was a an exempt what we call an exempt security, uh, so I was able to avoid spending a million dollars in doing registration, which of course I did not. You know, that would be totally beyond any means uh, for of the project. That I could not make what's called a public offer. That is, uh, I could not say we're looking for investors in this project. That would be against securities laws for an exempt security. So uh, I approached people that I knew personally. Right, that's when, when we met, right around then, and you started that project. Yeah. So that's just an example of uh, how difficult it can be to do these projects. And I, I love to see Frankly, what what is very difficult is is the lack of flexibility in policy uh, and regulations and and in the work I do. And frankly, I'm starting to see this in other areas such as you know, affordable housing. Just the lack of flexibility that's available. So, tell me a little bit about um, your experiences in Hong Kong working with the finances. Oh, well, thank you. Well, uh, tell you how, so. How did I get there? Uh, yeah, I mean that's yeah. a that's a big jump. Yeah, I know. Uh, well, good, but good question, Tim. Well, uh, let me back up all the way to uh, as I was a kid. I grew up on a small farm in Montana, and you went, you went to, to University of Montana, right? That's correct. And I uh, got a degree in finance, uh, sort of following in the, the footsteps of my father, who's a businessman, small businessman. Shout out to Dad. Yeah. Hey, Dad. How you doing? And uh, graduated from University of Montana, and like. Most uh, newly minted graduates, I left the state. Montana's biggest biggest export is its youth, and <laughs> and I came uh, came to Seattle and uh, worked for a brokerage firm for quite a few years. Uh, I went back to school while I was in Seattle. Was getting my MBA. Met my uh, wife. We were dating. So you met Tammy here in Seattle? Yeah, at Seattle University, and. Uh, we ended up moving to Hong Kong. Uh, my wife is, uh, Tammy is from Hong Kong, and she had a family emergency that she had to uh, attend to. So um, she said, I have to go to Hong I have to go back home to Hong Kong. Joe, will you come uh, with me? And I thought, sure, why not? Uh, Montana, Seattle, Hong Kong, that's just a natural uh, progression, right? And uh, first I got to get a passport. south. <laughs> yeah, I got to get a passport. I got to look on the map. Where is Hong Kong? So anyway, showed up in uh, 1989, end of 1989, um, and uh, I had a tourist visa and uh, looking for a job, but I had no right to look for a job over there. And yet, the uh, within a few months, the Hong Kong government hired me as a financial regulator to, uh, for the government. So does that change your visa status there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they said, we'll take care of the paperwork. Uh, we are the government. And, and can you imagine, just as an aside, of, of someone coming to this country and uh, not of America, not with an American passport and within a few months working for the U.S. federal government? No way. But it happened then. Um, so I worked, for, I, I worked in Hong Kong for uh, 10 years uh, working for the Securities and Futures Commission, which is— a long emergency. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, t- my wife's uh, mom passed away fairly quickly, but— there was just there was just reasons we decided to stay, and, yeah, and uh, once you make that kind of commitment to upend everything and sell everything you own and then move, uh, we decided to stay. And and she had a job, I had a job, and so we stayed there through the '90s. And so the first big chunk of that time was working for the colonial government, where we oversaw the stock exchange and futures exchange, and then uh, 
there, I was there for the transition where we uh, were part of the special administrative region for China. So while I was there, hold on, back up. What does that mean? The special region of China. special SAR, special administrative region of China. Hong Kong transferred from a British colony to being part of mainland China. Yes, they, it was called one country, two systems. Hong Kong is part of China, but it can maintain its laws um, and its currency and all the things that it made it uh, unique. And, and that, for the most part, has been maintained even to this day. Um, although, of course, uh, mainland China exerts tremendous uh, influence on, on, on Hong Kong. But um, <clears throat> what I was going to say is, I think in respect to this conversation, is um, I uh, – while I was there, I saw the uh, immense uh, increase in pollution, air quality, uh, de decrease in water quality, because we are right next door to the major industrial base of the world. All those factories, right? Yeah, the South China area. And I, I, not, I remember getting a lot of respiratory issues, sore throats. And, and I, I remember not, you know, just always being bothered. I, I just remember going to the doctor a lot. You know, I got this thing in my throat and, um, you know, can you do something about it? So when it was time for us to return to the States and we decided on Bainbridge Island, uh, I really thought hard about this, that what do I want to do with myself? Because that was such a transition to go there, but it was equally to go to Hong Kong. It was equally a very significant transition to com come back to this country after being away for 10 years. Wasn't it? Difficult times in Hong Kong towards towards the end of that stay. Um, good question. I think there was a big facade that was put on by Beijing uh, to say everything. This is something as someone who worked for the government for of uh, Hong Kong, they really impressed. Everything's the same, and nothing will change. Just go and do your job. So it, denial is a river in China. Actually, is that what you're saying? Pretty much. So in some ways. Nothing changed. In some ways, everything changed. You know, for example, when, during the actual transition, I mean, I, I worked on uh, up till Friday, working for the colonial government, took a long weekend off. I come back to my desk, and I'm working for the special administrative region of China. My desk looks the same. All the paper is still there. But my boss... The boss of our commission, the, the guy from London, is gone. Another guy from Beijing took his place. Let me tell you a story about Hong Kong at, during those days. We had a uh, Hong Kong had a has a legislature, and there was a legislator named Chin Po Chung. He was very corrupt. We knew it. And uh, the commission, we were trying to catch him at his deeds. We knew he was stealing a lot of money, but we, it was very hard to prove. And my boss, uh, Australian named Mark Dickens, was having a meeting with Chim. This is just before uh, 1997 handover. And Chim told my boss, Mark, come 1997, my friends in Beijing will protect me from you. Mark turned to Chim. And said, great, we'll wait till 1997, and my friends in Beijing will have you shot. Bam, there it is. And uh, so there was a lot of hardball there. 
So actually, when I think of Bainbridge, of course, we're not talking about, thank God, doing any of this, but... Hey, I know a guy. Just <laughs> just putting that out there. <laughs> but what I was going to say is uh, I work for an organization that was frankly roundly hated when I joined it uh, in, in uh, early 1990. Uh, I mean, here we were telling people in Hong Kong not to lie, cheat, and steal, and... Uh, the play by the rules, and uh, this being Hong Kong, we were accused of meddling, and we didn't understand the culture, and just bug out. We were hated as an organization. In the 10 years that I was there, we turned that to uh, at least respect. I don't think we were ever loved, um, but uh, we were respected as for doing our work, that we were considered part of the infrastructure of, of the community. How did we change from being just hated to being at least respected? And I think there's a lesson here for the city that I'd like to bring as, as a candidate, is that, well, we did our job really well. We were diligent, we were fair, we were totally transparent. Uh, we, when we came proposed policies. Now, mind you, this is in finance, so it's different, but then there's very, there's some similarities here. We got opinions in the community, in the industry, and uh, we did a very diligent what would work here in Hong Kong, and we would integrate proposals, create policy, and closely monitor what happened at all times keeping everyone informed as to what was going on. This is something I think the city could readily do, being more transparent, bringing in the public process sooner rather than later, and continually letting people know where we are at. How do you distribute that information to the people? It's a great question. Uh, I, th I would – well, how – part of my outreach work in, in renewables was, again, a lot of face-to-face uh, -face with folks. Uh, I think social media is very helpful, uh, having uh, emails. There's a host of ways to reach out to people, but you have to make that attempt, and you have to be – you can't just send one email out and say you're done. Let's, let's, let's talk about the, the uh, Sound Olympic uh, Trail uh, project because I, I think this is, this is uh, relevant when the, for how the city could have done a much, much better job in communication. Uh, I mean, that project, as I understand, had been in the works for years. But as yeah, I a, think since 2009 or something. Something like that. But did you know about it? Yes, um, but I, I can say to you, honestly, most of my neighbors didn't. And then when it did happen, even knowing about it, it was visually shocking. And I, I feel like the information I did have was incorrect. Mm -hmm. yeah. And indeed, well, it sounds like you were even better informed than me. I, I, I did not know this project was going to happen until they were literally doing it. And, uh, now I consider myself reasonably well-informed, but if I didn't know, I, I think there's a good chance probably 90% plus of the islanders did not know. So you talk to the city and they go, oh, well, we've been working on this a long time. Well, great, but how hard- Tell somebody. Yeah, how hard did you tell 
did you actually communicate? And talking with fo- folks around, you know, Cave Avenue or, or, or up by, you know, the owner of Ace Hardware, um, City did not make a, a concerted effort. You actually have to go out and meet people and talk to them. I think this is something I'm learning as a candidate. You actually have to step out and, and literally meet people and, and tell them what is going on, hear their feedback. And the city did not do that. So I think this, this is something the city can readily do and, and needs to do in order to keep the community informed as what's going on. And frankly, there's a, there's a, they need to rebuild some trust between itself and, and, the, uh, and the community. Blue Canary Auto, the bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostics. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call 206-451-4220. Loaner vehicles available upon request. Um, tell me about your time at Seattle U. Um, I worked at Garfield for a long time, and we used to head down to Seattle University and watch soccer games. Um, a lot of people that graduated from Garfield went on to SU, and there's some of my friends that are Red Hawks. What was the Jesuit-type experience in college and being in the inner city there at that time? It was uh, very intense for me. I was working full time and going basically, I, I guess, sort of night school, uh, uh, getting my degree. So I, I, my memories of that time was, I had, it was like work, school, and a little bit of sleep. And Tammy. And Tammy, yeah. And so, it's funny. I here I got my MBA, but what did I really get out of that? Winner, winner, winner! I got a wife. Yeah, I I I, I met my wife, and who who would have thought that uh, going back to school? That's because I, I, I remember when I went back to school, I said, "Well, there goes my social life," and uh, and yet I met my wife there, and uh, and then moved overseas, and you know suddenly life just takes a turn. But uh, I had a the Jesuits. Are Great. Uh, we had a business ethics class uh, led by a Jesuit, and let me see. There was some some a financial uh, crisis that was happening during that course, and and I remember I was swamped with work, and I explained to my professor that you know I'm just under a lot of pressure at work, and I'm really trying. And and he he was so cool with that. He he said you know he he just gave me a lot of slack to complete my work. Um, which I, I really, really appreciated. I, th- I think there's a sense of uh, broadening your scope. You know, here business, you often think is just making money, but just think of the Jesuits remind us that there is so much more at stake here. You know, why are we doing what we're doing, um, our work? or um, And we have, uh, frankly, a responsibility to, to others, um, to our fellow people, and I, I love that kind of reminding us that of that of that obligation, whether you're in business or, or really doing, you know, other other things. So um, that helped instill. I, I'm not Catholic, by the way. Um, I'm actually Buddhist, but uh, but I still I think the message is is still very clear to to reach out to others, to consider those who are less fortunate than you are, 
And, that, and that's something actually we need to transpose, transition here, talk about the island. Not everyone on the island is affluent, right? A lot of people are struggling here. Something that's been made very clear to me as a candidate, a lot of people are hanging on by their fingernails to live here on the island. We talk about, you often hear the conversation, how are we going to squeeze more people on the island? I would like to turn that a bit as how are we going to keep people from being squeezed out of the island, off the island? Because that is what's happening right now as we speak. When you were in Hong Kong, tell me about your go-to food. What was your favorite meal? Oh, my God. We ate out all the time. <laughs> um, it was, yeah, it was – talk about being killed for choice. The thing about Hong Kong is, is of course, you, you know, we never cooked Chinese food at home because why would you bother doing that? I mean, there's like 10 million Chinese restaurants there, right? It's Hong Kong. Yeah, it's huge. Um, and you could eat as high end as you could possibly think of, or you, some of the best food was just an alleyway restaurant. China, trucks? Do they have food trucks? Not then. Uh, space was very, very limited, so there was no place to park. Um, but what I was going to say, your, your traditional Chinese restaurant, they don't value let's just say the aesthetics, the surroundings uh, quite so much. The, the focus is on the food and a plastic stool and really inexpensive food. And it was incredibly good because the focus was, when it was on the food, keeping the prices down, not on making things visually fancy. Now, there's plenty of fancy restaurants there, but we ate it was like each night we would say, well, we're, what are we going to do? Are we going to have dumplings or are we going to have noodles or uh, are we going to have uh, Sichuanese food? You know, decisions, decisions. Okay. I don't think I got the answer, but it was all good, huh? <laughs> yeah. And there was even pizza there too. Get out. Um, let's back up to being uh, Buddha here. What does that experience entail directly on the island do you practice with others or do you have your own sense of buddhism do you meditate practice mindfulness hmm. thank you tim i am part of a soto zen group on the island shout out to soto zen uh my zen priest is a fellow named mark lancaster wonderful fellow who was part of the uh came from the san francisco zen center and he's been on the island for a couple years uh, wonderful group and i just personally find it incredibly important for me to meditate to do you start your day with meditation usually i i find snippets where you, you don't have to have I guess it's you, you couldn't have kind of regular times and there's times I join the group and, 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 and meditate but often you can do it just whenever you can like frankly the ferry ride is a perfect place to meditate do you go on deck or in the quiet room or? I usually just sit there and look out the window and look at the water and people think I'm zoning off but maybe I am maybe you're zoning in yeah zoning in yeah um, I find it incredibly helpful for me and and uh, and you don't have to be a Buddhist. It's just this effect of, of sort of inward reflection, calming yourself, and uh, just letting 
all those thoughts that kind of come and invade your mind, just let them go. Just let them go. Just like on your computer when you, you delete the files and stuff, you just got to let that stuff out of your head and get an empty brain and start over sometimes. I think this is particularly important now with the way the national dialogue is going. It's so distressful. Negative and everybody's hitting a different cause and political correctness is overcorrecting. And sometimes it's hard. You just got to breathe, listen to silence and, and clear your mind. I think that's a new the new reality we face is is how do we internally ourselves uh, digest all this digest and and uh, I think sometimes you just let it go don't let it you know yes we watch the news but just you just let it go and and just try and be yourself be there for your friends your family your community and because you're still you and there's still things going on and um, not that that we disregard what's happening, uh, say, in Washington, but we don't let it consume us because we can't. So when you're in your community, what are what is your favorite community event? Yeah, I, I find I just like hanging out with people. Um, I, you know, one thing as a candidate, what I, I find I actually enjoy is just talking with people. Because I'm, I'm fascinated. What's what's on people's minds? Um, and this is actually pre-candidate days. Uh, is why, like for instance, solar. Uh, I, I I'm a consultant for a solar company, and first question I always ask folks is, well, why why do you want to do it? Because frankly, you don't have to. You know, we get our power anyway. And uh, and I'm I'm just always fascinated what what drives people to make that decision. So. We are all amazing beings, and we all have a story to tell. And I think giving people the chance to tell their story. So for me, often it requires just being quiet and listening to them. And I, I'm trying to do that, as certainly as a candidate. As, you know, I, of course, I'm speaking all the time, but I also want to hear what's on Everyone, uh, pers- uh, the community's minds. What 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 is coming up? The pumpkin walks coming up. That's oh. one of my favorite events over oh. at Bainbridge Gardens. Another event that I like that's communal is uh, the Fourth of July and the Third of July. The dance with all the kids in the street, and that's always been one of my favorites. And I've met a lot of people at both those events, and it's enjoyable. Um, do you guys? Go hiking as a family or walk any trails on the island? Uh, we're, we're totally into hiking. Uh, Where's your favorite spot? Oh, um, actually, uh, we, we do uh, Gazam Lake. It's really cool. Um, we, frankly, we <laughs> when the weather was good, we'd go for a lot of bike rides. But actually, as a family, we, we, we're really into hiking, backcountry hiking. Last... Uh, summer we joined the the park district had an organized hike through the enchanted valley which is sort of the south end of uh, olympic national park where you go for in that case we went from dosi wallops which is on the um east side of the park to uh lake quinault on the west side four days and and we were led by um fellow named Ranger, that's his real name, and a great guy for the Park District. And uh, 
it was just a great hike. So we we'd like to do a lot of that. Uh, we go uh, hiking on the coast, uh, Montana, where you know, of course I'm from, and uh, I I just love it. I, I I just there's so much beauty here. Absolutely, Joe. There's a lot of priorities ahead of city council. How do we go about prioritizing the finances and what projects to continue or discontinue? Where do you see the prior priorities lying? Excellent question, Tim. My priorities, my number one priority is environmental protection, that we, we have to protect what we have. I mean, the very reason a lot of us are here, most of us are here, is, is this, the small town and rural nature of the, of the community. The, uh, our open spaces, our meadows, our, our, uh, our streams, our beaches, our forests, forest, yeah. trees. I mean, these, this is, frankly, the quality of the life we have here. Uh, and I, I see all of these at stake. Um, unfortunately, with the immense pressure of the growth that we, we are having because Seattle's going crazy. We need to make sure that the things that we hold dear are not lost to us. But also, what is also very important is that those who work here, who've lived here, can afford to stay here. My goal, if, if you had to, if someone asked me, maybe you will ask, so I'll answer it right now before you even ask, is... We have a medium in the room. <laughs> yeah. Is what, what would you consider, it, what, would, what criteria would you say you, you would be an effective council member? To me, it'd be if young people who've grown up here on the island... And they leave, they go to school, they, they go to, you know, start their careers. At some point in their lives, they feel compelled or drawn to return to Bainbridge. And they can afford to do so. Right now, that is very difficult because we really have no affordable housing. Uh, there's no requirement for affordable housing on the island. So, so he, you have a... a and issues relating to the environment, but people are part of that equation too. Absolutely. And I think that gets lost sometimes. Um, the environment is incredibly important, and I am a staunch environmentalist, but at, so help me, uh, we cannot pay lip service to affordable housing and I'm going to be very strong on that. I, I've been talking with folks on the um, Affordable Housing Task Force because, honestly, I'm not an expert on this. My background is in finance. It's in renewables. But I see this as an incredibly important priority, and I, we need to do everything we can. I mean, I can tell you stories. People have come to me who are literally being pushed off the island because uh, they can't afford to live here. Yeah, absolutely. What's, what's the first move with affordable housing? The first move? What's the first part of action that we take? Well, first, making it a, incorporating a requirement for it, which there is no requirement for affordable housing. There's so, a choice, though, right now, right? Yeah. It's, affordable it's, versus green. Yeah, and, and, and it's not a good choice. Yeah, and, and frankly, <laughs> it shouldn't be a choice. First off, green building is just sensible building in and of itself. Uh, Buzzword. Incorpor incorporating uh, energy efficiency just makes sense. For example, did you know Habitat for Humanity is one of the largest green builders in the country? 
Okay, they're not doing this so much to be green. They're doing it because it makes sense, because it, it helps the affordability of the home of the homeowner. It's not just buying your home, being able to afford to buy it, uh, being able to afford to buy it, but being able to afford to live in the house. To me, that is just makes perfect sense. You should not have that either that choice or affordable. They need to be together. Okay, we have we need that for one. It decreases our our demand for uh, power. It uh, frankly makes the home more livable. It uh, will, of course, reduce our carbon footprint on the island. And having the affordability of of uh, a component, they it shouldn't it does not it should not be an either or. It needs to be both. And call it affordable green. Affordable housing. green. Yeah, I like that. I'm coining it. Hashtag that, everyone. Climate change um, seems to be coming to the forefront. How do you feel about these people that are still denying it? You know, I was doorbelling the other day, and I apparently hit a kind of a patch of conservatives. Um, and this fellow was sort of... I don't know if he knew my background, but he was being a little snarky. And he says, yeah, right, solar, wind, and, uh, you know, as if that's going to make a difference. And I said, well, don't you, would you say we need to do something? I mean, let's just look at the fires in California, the hurricanes. My father in Montana was literally, my 90-year-old father was choking on smoke in Montana. Uh, Devastation to wildlife too. Yeah, you know, it's having a huge impact. Oh, it's enormous. And and even he, this fellow, he kind of backed up. And he says, "Yeah, I know." <laughs> so I, I actually, in a weird way, I thought consider that as progress. Um, I think people there is, you know, I you cannot if someone's going to deny it with this much evidence. I don't know what to do because uh, their mind is set apparently, but. I do see a shift. I really do see a shift. Just as I saw a shift in uh, accepting uh, renewables in in this in the Pacific Northwest. When I first started in the solar industry 12 years ago, and people say, you're for solar here? Oh, what a joke. It doesn't work. It's gray and rainy. I don't hear that anymore. I really don't. I mean, I'm out there talking to people all the time. So it's becoming accepted. There, there has been a, a, to me, a tectonic shift in 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 uh, awareness of of what renewables can do. Just as I think that is happening for climate change, the thing we need to understand is these kind of shifts don't just happen all of a sudden. They are very gradual, and sometimes we're not aware of how much progress we were making. Um, it's just unfortunate that uh, on the leadership side, if you know, if that is devoid. Then we fall back, if it's not working on the national level, like it clearly is not now, we fall back on the state level and the local level. That's why, I'll just, my plug as a candidate, you want someone in council who is fully on board with this issue, but is cognizant of keeping things affordable, having practical solutions. Uh, I hear a lot of ideas of, of new technologies, but frankly, the technologies that we have now are working quite well. Um, let me will I will say that in terms of storage, which is a huge issue for us, uh, battery storage, we're not quite there yet, uh, we're, but we're getting closer. We're closer than we were, just say, last year. There's a 
a lot of talk about wind and solar. There used to be a lot of talk about natural gas, propane. What happened to those people? And in which way? I'm uh, like a clean energy source. Um, a lot of uh, barbecues shifted to natural gas, propane, thinking that was better than the coal and the wood. And is that have less of an impact? Well, I don't think propane is clean, not that I'm aware of, but uh, natural gas is – I look at natural gas as a transition fuel. Naturally, we don't get it here on the island, but I, I think we, we do need to be strategic of how we transi transition from coal, which we absolutely need to do, and PSC needs to have their feet held to the uh, fire on that. Are we transitioning from coal with PSE? We need to. They need to. Uh, Is I was, that a priority of theirs at all? Have we pushed this issue far enough that they're going to take action and start using less dependent, uh, or excuse me, but being less dependent on the, the coal mining? That is an excellent question, Tim. And I can't, I'm not, of course, going to speak for PSC. Uh, I was just at the community meeting last Monday that they held, which I appreciate them doing. And <laughs> Andy Wappler was talking about being, oh, we're here for the community and we're very much for green power, for renewables. I totally believe in climate change. I raised my hand and I said, um, Mr. Wappler, would you be, uh, would Puget Sound Energy be in favor of increasing the renewable portfolio standards that we have in Washington, which are actually very, very low compared to other states? He gave me a total non-answer. They need to change. Coal is a choice. You can choose away from coal. They can do it, and I have not seen the level of commitment that they need to make. Is there any um, issue with that being a monopoly? Like, we have to go with PSE as our power source unless we're living off the grid on the island, and we have to accept that they use 60% of their um, resources on coal? I would love to have us have more choices and- uh, Cable or direct TV is that Yeah, yeah, it, and, and uh, that's, a, that's a great question, Tim. And I, I'm, I'm still researching that. There's some uh, uh, alternatives that are sort of in play that are not re available at this point uh, where you can have another choice. I mean, for example, Microsoft is, went, uh, I guess, full renewables without Puget Sound Energy, okay? And they're, they're in Redmond and PSE's territory. So we, I'd love to see any, when I do my work uh, in, in so many areas, uh, I always, I have been finding that a common thread that is very, very helpful is flexibility in policy, flexibility in choices. And we don't have that. We have PSE. But I, in any case, PSC, whether they are our utility or are not our utility, their carbon footprint is still relevant to this conversation. Good point. So just to say we go green direct. What does that I, consist of, going green direct? Uh, as I understand, basically, you're going to – your choices, your personal energy mix is is uh, 
all renewables. Okay, that's fine. I mean, I'm on a whole total green power myself at our household. But at the end of the day, PSC still has, I think, 30% coal. Okay, that needs to be addressed. They need to address that. They and uh, that. So let's not lose track of that. Uh, that and frankly, they do have our attention. Let, and let me just say, why do they want to keep Bainbridge Island so badly? Why do you think? I have no idea. Because we're an all-electric island. We are a high-revenue source to them. Ah. We, Secrets out, PSE. They do not want to lose us. The utility uh, in my in my business in, in solar industry uh, or any energy energy uh, component, uh, utility is not your enemy. The utility is not your friend. They they are there, hopefully, yeah. to work with you. Are you and, saying they're my frenemy? Frenemy, maybe. <laughs> but and I'll say, actually, in many ways, they are very very progressive in in. Uh, the work that I do and connecting folks uh, with net metering, and they are very, very pro net metering. Tell, uh, tell people what net metering is. Yeah, good, excellent question, Tim. Net metering is the single most important right a solar owner has, by bar none. What it is is that you have a say, you have a solar energy system at your home or business. At any point where you're producing more electricity than you need, electrons just don't stand still. If you do not need it, it's a sunny day. Maybe you're not there in the home or business. That electricity has to go somewhere. Under the net metering agreement, you would sign with the utility. It would go into the grid, and the utility would use it for their needs. You produce the power. They used it. In return, the utility will give you a credit on your account. It's a non-monetized incentive, but it's kind of like you're making a lot of money at some point, so you make a deposit in the bank. That's typically it's never happened to me. <laughs> so in the summer, that's when net metering often kicks in. You, you, you know, people are producing more power because we we have a very seasonal uh, solar climate here. And then you know when the weather gets like it is now, rainy, gray, and dark. Then you pull those credits back. That is net metering. And I'm very pleased to say, to PSE's credit, they are very pro-net metering. I cannot say that of other, of other utilities in, in this state. Is there even another utility company, a commercial one, that we can go with? Like, pick a la carte. Like, my neighbor has PSE and I have something else. Also, second part of that question is, all solar green energy that you're running at your house, is that all going through the PSE system? Well, make, make sure I, I understand the question, Tim. Is, is, is there a preferred utility? Um, is there an option to have multiple choices? Well, not that? now. No, you know, no, there isn't. Uh, so it's kind of like a monopoly. It is a mon- it is it is a directly a monopoly right now. If you you can't say I don't want you PSE, to, well, then you don't get electricity. Um, so uh, we do not have that choice, and frankly, that's a problem. I th- I think there should be some uh, some choices again, incorporating flexibility 
I mean, this is this isn't this what we're seeing more and more of in in, in uh, with our technology world is is having more choices. Well, how come we have these uh, monopolies, these holdovers? Um, I think this is this this needs to change. The second part was your house and your energy sources. Is that streamlined through the PSE system? Well, I'm I'm not uh, I don't have a solar system at my home. I I have the community solar project that I'm a participant in. So I'm just buying my electricity from PSE like everyone else. And then of course I am green powered, uh, if you will. I I pay more uh, for that. So uh, you could say yes, I'm I'm all renewables. But uh, PSE has an option to pay extra to go green, correct? Yeah, yeah, they 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 uh, they have that. There's a thing called renewable energy credits that, uh, if you have a solar system or wind system, you 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 have these credits, and these credits are marketable. So you, people can uh, buy the recs, as they're called, and the quote, even though you didn't produce the power and it's not at your site, you take credit. And then that those who have the site and producing the power, they cannot take credit. It's it's a little I, I actually I find it a little funny that the way this is it, to me it, 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 it sort of doesn't stand to reason in some ways, but that's how it works. Um, and what I would like to see on the island is more local distributed energy. Okay. And, of course, I'm a solar guy, so I, I think solar would definitely – there's sites here that we can use. There's like – say let's say green that green direct. None of that is local distributed energy. This is what we need to do. This is something PSE could readily help us with. Uh, by the way, green power. I mentioned I'm, I'm doing this. Um, at Sun Energy Systems? Yeah. Yeah, well, at my home as a, pers- as a, as a homeowner. Uh, and we have over a thousand, I think maybe eleven, maybe twelve hundred, close to twelve hundred people on the island who subscribe to Green Power. How much money do you think PSE gets from all that Green Power money? How how about how much? I have no idea. About one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars a year. Where do you think that money goes? Um, to the shareholders. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. No, it goes into a reserve to help in, improve uh, better energy systems for the yeah. future, right? So my, tell me, tell me a good story here. Yeah, well, this I think this is this is a good story. So we, a whole bunch of us on the island, are voluntarily paying money to Green Power. It leaves the island, and PSC is doing what with it? It's not exactly clear to me, honestly. Huge chunk, as I understand, is going to administrative fees. Okay, for what? My point being here is if you want to start talking about using some monies that are already there, we're already donating this, why don't we take that money, tell PSC, we want that money to be invested locally in local projects. Let's put solar on low-income housing. Let's put solar on on nonprofit buildings. Let's increase energy or con- or also energy efficiency measures. In other words, this, we're already paying this. This is going to cost us nothing because we're already paying for it. 
local projects using the money that we are already paying out. And can you imagine if we can get them to shift this? And I've been trying to get them to do this for like 15 years to make this change, keeping the money local. If we could do that, I am positive that the amount of participation would increase because people would get it. Oh, you mean I can donate to a fund that will build up each year and those that money will go and stay in the community. Kind of a la one call for all in a way. You put your money in a pool and then we let's just say we have a an RFP process or what have you where we can select each year, okay, we're going to put that pool of money in this project or and then that project. Keeping the money local. To me, this just makes perfect sense, and I'd like to see PSC. I know they could do it. What do you feel about the argument of privatization of the energy system? Oh, like uh, island power? Yeah, some some people are very strong, strongly um, opinionated about that idea. Well, yes. Um, I'm not in favor of uh, island power. I never was. Um, my experience is... Well, first off, it was very clear that the island the community was not in favor of it. Let's just say, you know, I, I didn't see any surveys, but it was very obvious that, this, that people were not in favor of it. To me, that is enough said. If you want to do something of that nature, something that is that drastic of a change, you have to have community buy-in. That's been my experience doing projects and programs Without community buy-in, it's not going to happen, and it did not happen here. So, uh, I just is I did not think the case was made, and it had nothing to me to do with being more green or being more reliable or being more cost-effective. So, no, I, I was not in favor of it. Um, so, it has some traction. How how many people are part of this island power group? I have no idea. Supporters. Okay, we'll just shut them down then. Yeah, I mean, I no, I had nothing, nothing to do with it, despite what someone said on letters to the editor. Shout, shout them out, put them on blast. I don't care. <laughs> um, Suzuki property. Um, how do you feel about that? Uh, I toured that site with uh, Herb Heathcote a month or so ago. Uh, what I like about it is there's clearly about the, um, I think that's about 13 acres in total. The majority of that land needs to be preserved. Anyone who walks that can see the value of, of the um, natural part of that. Uh, and that tends to be the, that's the uh, northern section. There's a pond there. I don't know, have you ever, have you walked that site oh, all the time? My kid uh, takes his bike on it and walks to Sakai School, and um, we go on the back behind the bus barn, and it's it's a nice property. I the one thing I would like to see is the poling of the trees so they could start getting wider. Mm-hmm. This might be a stupid question, but it wouldn't be my first stupid question. Who currently owns the rights to that land? City owns it, right? City owns the land. I don't know. I don't fact check, but yeah, uh, I mean that that is that is my understanding. That's why we're having this conversation of what to do with it. Is there any discussion of transferring that to the land trust? 
I am not aware of that. But let's just let's, let me just go back to you know the site itself. Yeah, just give me your thoughts on. It. Yeah, and and so I see uh, uh, the majority of the land staying in its natural state. However, the the um, northern section, if you will, the part that goes by, you know, what New Brooklyn, where you see those sort of spindly trees. Yeah, the, we call it toothpick forest. Yeah, my kid. Yeah, and uh, that is prime habitat, if you will, for affordable housing to go. And I think, what's that going to do to traffic? Though it's already a mess right there on that corner, of that four way stop. Well, as opposed to not doing anything for affordable housing, um, I mean, I think what I see. Do we have other options of? Places, uh, sites is, that the city owns that we can put affordable. Uh, perhaps housing. so, but the fact is that, that we have nothing in the pipeline for affordable. I mean, the Ferncliff Village project. Have you ever been out there? Absolutely. That's a great. I love that place, and that that was that's a model of what this community can do when it works together for a common goal. Once again, I need to give a shout out to the two llamas that were displaced in Ferncliff. Hmm. I miss you guys. Yeah. Yeah, I remember those llamas. Um, so, so what I was going to say is, and this this has been my experience of of doing projects is, anytime you see an opportunity, you got to jump on it. And at what cost, though? I mean, you you talk about environment and habitat, but yet it's prime affordable housing habitat. What's the priority? And it sounds like affordable housing is a priority, but does it have to be right there? I guess. Are we just running out of land and places to make? There is only so much land naturally on the island. And my Tim, my 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 point would be if we said no to affordable there, why would we do that? Why would we deny an opportunity of land that the city owns? We at we are in an affordable housing crisis. Let's agree on that. I do agree on that. And to deny that opportunity is is to say that this is not very important to us. And I'll just say it's very important to me. And I will do everything I can to put affordable, real affordable, permanent, income-related affordable housing on Suzuki for that section with the spindly trees. So what do you know about the parking garage situation? I've, I've heard rumors about that going up. Um, once again, transparency in government. I don't know exactly where to find out the information on what's going on there, what the future holds for that, and what what it's going to look like. Do you have any details on it? Uh, I'll share with you what I know. Um, awesome. Well, let's let's talk about. Do we have a parking traffic issue in Winslow? I believe we do. Anecdotally, someone who lives on the island drive down to Winslow, say on a Saturday, try and find a place to park. Sometimes I end up parking at Island Fitness where I go to gym, to the gym, but I'm not going to the gym. I'm just using the parking. parking. Sorry, Michael. People listen to this. I know. I shouldn't be doing that. So that's not good. So can we agree that we have an issue with parking traffic in Winslow? For sure, especially if we're a growing community and we absorb more people through building affordable housing, there's going to be more cars. And you look at 
the parking lot around the ferry, it's pretty much at capacity now. What what's it going to look like as the as we roll out more people and the future comes. So we definitely have to plan for the parking situation because we're a society of cars. And meanwhile, do you, we actually have fewer parking spots than we did just a few years ago. When Winslow tomorrow uh, happened, we lost about 60 parking spaces. When Town & Country did their remodel, we lost about 30. So we're down about 90 from what we were before. So... Let's start with that understanding that we have fewer parking spots than we did a few years ago, and we have a parking traffic issue. Okay. Now, I'm not advocating for the parking garage. Just be very upfront about that. I, I think the issue the, or the solution needs to be found is how can we bring people to downtown? Not necessarily cars. It's people we want to come. Okay. Are there other options than a parking garage? I would like to explore those opportunities, those solutions first. Transit. Transit. Bicycle uh, share program, perhaps. Bicycle share programs. Let's be creative here. Because I, I, I mean, let's just, honestly, a garage, it's expensive. It's going to add more, duh, it's going to add more cars, noise, traffic, pollution. Environmental, uh, climate. You know, it's, it has effects. Yeah. And can we even afford it? Okay. I mean, the financing of this would need to be a ma- mixture of uh, revenue bonds, which would be voted by the community. And uh, the business community has readily said that they will support this through like a um, LID. Uh, uh, so, What's LID? Uh, it's a local improvement district. So it would be uh, a funding mechanism that the business uh, community would participate Okay, so that's the business community has been very clear, as I understand, that they will support, they will financially support this. But I don't think they could do it all on their own, is my understanding. But in any case, if this went forward, and I'd like to find other solutions, but if it went forward, it needs to go to a public vote. The community needs to have its say. And if it is in a vote, you know, as a as a ballot measure, it needs to be as a separate item, separate from anything else, such as non-motorized transportation. It cannot be in a combined vote. I think that doesn't make sense to me. If, okay, so if we had a ballot measure, I guess what would be next year, of non-motorized transportation and the parking garage, separate issues. And if they both were passed by the community, if it was decided to pass those, that's a big F, the city could combine the two measures into a single bond issue and save on issuing costs. But again, do we need to do the garage? I am not convinced that this is necessary, but I am convinced we have a problem. So it does no good to pretend that this pro- there is no problem to be solved. How about we just combine it with the $28 million police station? Put a garage into, on top of that. Hmm, that's a thought. <laughs> How do you feel about that police station? Well, uh, Tim, would you say we need a new police station? Um, yes. At that scale, no. Okay. Uh, clearly, what, $28.4 million. There's a There's a lot that can be cut out of that. And you, you, you talk with the city, they, they, they acknowledge that. You talk with uh, Matt Hammer, the chief of police, there's a lot that can be cut out. Um, 
He seems like a reasonable guy. He does. And then I, we, he and I talked about this. He, he, he gave me kind of a, I can't remember what the square footage of that plan is. Uh, it's tw- 20,000 plus square feet. But he said he does not want to go anything less than 17,000 square feet in size. And uh, I'm sure we could cut from that 28 million, we could probably get it down closer to 20. Again, we what we need is a um, now is that combined with the fire station or or not not it'd be with the the court the courthouse and the police station and why we need to spend twenty million dollars what is the improvements that they want to make because it doesn't seem like there's a lot of traffic going in and out of the police station or the courthouse in my personal humble mm-hmm. opinion yeah. Well, one thing to keep in mind, Tim, is what does the police station do for us? We do have, do we have domestic abuse situations on the island? Do we have sexual assault? Not in my house. Yeah. Well, that's good. Um, what I was going to say is, unfortunately, these things do occur. And when people, where this has happened to them, they need a safe place to come to report, to talk with an officer, a humane place. Say a domestic abuse scenario. Let's just think of this. Uh, the, the, the wife and the kids come to the station. Under the current station, there's no place for the kids to be away from hearing what the wife is telling the officer. That is not a humane way to treat people. This isn't, a, we're not talking about a Taj Mahal for police officers. We're, what we're talking about is a humane place for people to feel safe when they're in a crisis situation. Also, let's not forget what are we trying to accomplish here? I, I have not heard this conversation at all during the entire race is we're trying to maintain safety and security on the island. Do you feel people are on blast when they walk in there? Like it's right there at the ferry terminal and visually there's so much traffic that if you walk into the place, police station on a small island, people start talking. Is, the, is that type of uh, inhumane situation? Um, I don't know. I, I, I've walked in there a few times for one reason or another. Um, I can't say – you know that would be uh, an issue, but but I, I do I do want to get back to my point about safety. Um, we had a shooting in Eagle Harbor a few months ago. A young woman from Bainbridge Island was killed in the Las Vegas shooting. These things are real. These things are happening. Are we as a community ready for something? We are not immune to what is happening in the wider world. We need to have a a discussion, a conversation about what do we need to be to feel safe here. That's what the police station is, the intent will be. I mean, that's the, the goal, right? So I know it's important to save dollars, but we also need to save lives. Do we not? Absolutely. I mean... There's a lot more activity on the island. We're not immune to it. This is not utopia. 
when I first moved here, I rarely locked my door or my car. In the last year, my wife's bicycle was stolen out of our yard. Then my son's bicycle was stolen out of the yard. And then two weeks ago, my car was hit and run. And it looks like this person might have had a stolen vehicle, might not have insurance, might not be a legal driver. I hear about the mail theft a lot. Um, There are plenty of people with mental illness on the island, and situations have arised from that. That crazy harbor shooting, you know, it's stuff's popping off here, and safety is an issue. And I think our police department does an excellent job, and I want to support them. To the tune of $20 million, I don't know what that looks like and how long that project takes, um, but I like the idea of the courthouse being attached to it. Can we, instead of using a different city property, can we use the existing property, remodel it, like the fire station's being remodeled, or can we make a bigger building over there in Rolling Bay at the courthouse and accommodate them there? Because one thing I do know that you live in the North End, but the police are pretty far away from any activity there. So a more centrally located spot might be the be mm-hmm. the answer, and maybe Rolling Bay is not centrally located. Um, thoughts about those two locations? Well, if I, uh, as I understand, talk about Rolling Bay, uh, the courthouse is, um, I think they're leasing that site, and I heard that that, is, that lease is ending. Um, I'm Okay. So that's my understanding. So, so that that, that actually move. that's actually at beyond the city's control, I believe. Do they own the police station, or do you know? Uh yes. Actually, that by the way, that's a very highly valuable piece of property. Now, so a couple things here. Um, if my what I understand is, if we were to build there, and actually, that's a pretty cool location. I I, I think I, I like having the police station right there as you come off the island. However, to rebuild there. That's the most expensive option. Why is that? Uh, well, it's it's actually the the transition from think of it. If you're going to go, okay, we're going to rebuild this. So how do they transition from functional police station to, you know, tearing it down and building a new one? It's that that's a very expensive remodel, and and. Uh, whether they would still stay on site, where they would go somewhere else during that transition. Plus, that's a relatively small piece of land, and they would have to build up. Uh, so the construction costs would be more expensive, as well as just the construction process will be more expensive. So hence, that is the most expensive option. Now, if we were to find <laughs> – we still haven't found a site yet uh, – but when – Hopefully, when that is accomplished, people say, oh, well, you got to buy the land. Well, we own that site where the current station, the city owns that site where the current station is. That's a highly valuable piece of land. My understanding is anything we sell, the city sells, that site, the current police station site, will be more than enough money to buy the other property. That's been what I've been advised. We could always still use that property for the the garage if people felt inclined. Once you build the police station on another piece of property, maybe that's the spot for the garage. But that's another debate another time. Um, 
Tell me about these um, groups that have endorsed you. Oh, oh yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, let's see. I've been endorsed by uh, Climate Action Bainbridge. This is the um, local env- environmental organization. By Quality Bainbridge. By uh, which you know, local organization. Um, yeah, and I've been endorsed by Equal Rights Washington. Uh, they advance uh, or protect the rights of LGBTQT uh, f- folks, and, and let's just say everybody, right? Be- um, and let's let's just say why is that important? Be- really, in this the environment, uh, the dialogue that we're seeing uh, nationally, statewide, and frankly local. Um, People who are in one way or another different, uh, and this includes people of color, um, are under threat. And we need to do all that we can to make sure that they are, they are safe. Uh, other endorsements, I've been uh, the Kitsap Democratic Party has endorsed me as the 23rd Legislative Democrats have, have endorsed me. So yes, I have. I have. Uh, I'm very pleased that I, I've been. I have a lot of endorsements, and a lot of individuals have endorsed me too. People can go to my uh, campaign website and see all the folks who have endorsed me. What is your campaign website? Uh, it's joedeetsforcouncil.com. The number four or the word? no f o r. Okay, just want to check out. Where else can they find information about you? Uh, well, to see professionally, they can go to my LinkedIn site, but I, I don't mention the campaign there. Uh, so yeah, I think the campaign website, I'm pretty active on Facebook. Um, gosh, folks can give me a call. You know, I, I, I'm all for communication and, and I, I, one thing I, I, people do call me at, uh, 206-855-4893. Nice. Hey, I got a little segment here called the Fast Five. I'm just going to ask you five questions, and you give me an answer. First thing that pops into your head. Favorite food to cook? Pizza. You cook pizza? Yes. I'm a student of pizza. You hear that? That's a sum? There's a a guy that might uh, be coming on. What kind of pizza do you make? Um, My daughter likes the standard um, mozzarella tomato sauce which I, I so I, I make two pizzas uh, for a family so that for her because that's all she seems to eat she's pizza and yes. then and then uh, my wife and I, I, I that's where I get more creative I, I try and think well let's let's try shrimp uh, let, oh uh, shrimp a, on pizza a, oh gosh yes um, there's another one a white bean pizza that doesn't sound like it would be good but it's delicious um a lot of uh, different types of cheeses, mascarpone. Uh, I love pizza with uh, pesto sauce. You know, pizza, is, it's amazing because it's so simple in many ways, but there's so much there. You know, so much. To, I, I've been trying to make the best, the, the best pizza I can for like eight years, and I'm still a student at it. Nice. I, I like to make uh, what I call a white pizza where I put olive oil all over the dough, Minced garlic, uh, a couple white cheeses, and um, caramelized onions, and I love that. That sounds good. Yeah, I'll have you have you over for uh, pizza night sometime. Rainy day activities. What's your favorite? Uh, reading book. Um, uh, all of us in our family are are very avid readers. 
I'm reading uh, just segue my book. What am I reading now? Is a biography of Henry David Thoreau. Uh, Who is he? He who's Henry David Thoreau? Yeah, he, he he's. Uh, I'm not well read, people. Okay, well, he's really the first environmentalist. He uh, was in the 18. He wrote uh, Walden in uh, was it 1846. Lisette was his experience at Walden, where he and Walden Pond in Massachusetts, where he lived in a. Uh, he built his cabin and lived there for two years, two months, two days, and basically just lived off the land um, and wrote about it. He was. Here he was a uh, in New England in the 1840s, but he he was very Buddhist, very Zen. I'm gonna check that out for sure. Transcendentalist. Transcendentalist. Good word, Chris. Hey, um, what song motivates you? <laughs> you know, we're all, you know, we tied to our champions. past. Uh, and I find I still like the music I li- listened to as a teenager. Yeah, it takes you back to a time that was enjoyable. It's I, great. I listen to uh, Little Feet, and uh, who've been long gone. But uh, I, I just I sort I've listened. You know, you, you don't listen to it for a while. Then I, you know, I mean, now I, I'm listening to them again, and I now I understand why I liked them so much when I was a kid because I, I they are they are still great. Um, I like jazz. Um, and uh, yeah, and actually some classical. Uh, my daughter plays the cello. Uh, I think Beethoven rocks. Absolutely. Um, what life failure did you learn from the most? Life failure. Um, I would say when when I was getting into renewables, and I was finding, to my surprise that people weren't reacting rationally to the transition, that that there was uh, – people are – we're creatures of habit, of patterns, and we seem to – we accept existing technologies based on faith and, and habit, and to acknowledge that these are actually significant behavior patterns or actually significant barriers to change was, I remember going through almost a crisis internally recognizing this and until it finally, you know, it's like, yeah, people are not rational and uh, let's accept it. Um, so how do we create the change that we want to have happen? So I think recognizing that the obvious is not always the way to try and approach a problem. And, and, and yet we, you see it yourself and you see others just trying to take that approach, uh, assume we're rationally beings when we're, we clearly are not. What's the most scared you've ever been in your life? Oh, my God. I can tell you. Shout out to Kitsap Fairgrounds, the haunted yeah, house, the other oh day. God. Jeez, this was. I was a kid. I I lived on a small farm in Montana, and I had to walk to school all by myself in pitch black. And and I was like uh, fourteen, and I was walking to the school. It was a dead of winter, and it was cold. It was dark, and as I was walking by myself, there was this huge thing that was following me early in the morning. 
It was enormous. It was quiet. It was keeping pace with me. Bigfoot sighting. I was like Bigfoot. And I, I was suddenly went from being kind of a sleepy kid to being utterly, utterly ter- Stephen King terrified. I thought, this is it. This is it. He'll, he'll never be seen again. I tripped and it tripped. I realized I was scared literally of my own shadow. But the terror was very, very <laughs> <Be> real. real. <laughs> yeah. You got to, that, that's my fast five. Um, I want to throw this out here. You got a joke to tell? Oh. You got a favorite joke? Oh, gosh. Um, oh, I didn't bring one. Um, do you have one? Uh, sure. What has six eyes but cannot see? Six eyes that cannot see. A blind spider? Oh. Very close. Three blind mice. <laughs> hey, um, we're going to wrap it up here. Do you have any upcoming events or anything you want to plug or shout outs oh. to, to anybody you want to say hi to? Well, I gosh, all the folks who've been so supportive. You know, this running for office is really um, a community experience. You know, it's 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 your name out there. You're the candidate, but you cannot trust me. You cannot get anywhere without supporters. And I can think of probably about a hundred people who've helped me in one way, shape, or form. So, uh, thank you, everybody. Thank you, Bainbridge. This has been a very affirming experience to me. I I've really loved being out there in the community. It's my eyes have been opened wider than ever before being as a candidate. So it's been wonderful. Um, please vote, you know, this is for you. And, um, if I'm elected, I will, I will do everything for you. Thank you. Rock the vote people. You've been listening to the bystander podcast with your host, me, Tiny Tim, Timothy Self, and my guest today was Joe Dietz. Thank you, Joe. Yeah, thank you. This is great.